drowning on dry land. The sixth episode, part 12. Part 12, The Dark Intersections of Madness. The driver brought me inside and I waited in the same kind of sterile reception area where we all spend bland chunks of our lives. After some minutes, a social worker appeared and took me into a small room with nothing but a wooden bench and three chairs. She handed me a paper bag for my clothes, a hospital gown, which was an odd choice for a death shroud, a pair of white socks, and a blanket. She left me alone to change into the gown and pull on the socks. Odder still was the form I was asked to fill out when she came back, using one of these stubby pencils that would become a mainstay, along with crayons. Through the fog in my head, I struggled to understand why a personal history was required from someone about to be euthanized or simply left to die. Whatever the case, I spent a torturous half hour on the two sheets, one slow letter at a time. But I didn't get far. The social worker reappeared, shook her head over the unfinished forms, and left without saying anything. I could have been there five minutes or an hour. Time had become elastic and would stay that way. I got up to wander. At the end of the hall was a small alcove with chairs, a low table, and a snack machine. I remember thinking, snacks? In death's waiting room? What, in case people got hungry traveling to the other side? Or didn't they have Cheetos available in the great beyond? If that was the case, bummer. A young woman was escorted in by a different social worker who then exited through the security door. She sat down across from me and after a minute said, Are you here for your session? I had been staring at the floor. I looked up at her. Session? Your therapy. I offered her what must have been a wistful smile and said, Oh no, it's way too late for that. This brought a puzzled look, but before we could discuss it further, her social worker returned and led her away. More time went by, and a woman I would come to know as Gloria arrived. She had a kind voice with an African lilt. Through the fog, I managed to understand that she would be my escort on the next leg of my journey. She arranged the blanket over my shoulders and led me out of the area and along a series of corridors, with me shuffling like an old man. We stopped at a door, and she opened it wide and waved me through. Two dozen patients were seated in a circle of chairs listening to an instructor. A few turned to look at me. The thought, oh, this must be purgatory, crossed my mind. Gloria had me stand by the wall for a photograph that would later be attached to a wristband. In it, I'm huddled in my blanket, my gaze unfocused, my hair going in 12 different directions. I look to all the world like someone brought into a soup kitchen on a freezing night, and it will forever be a sobering moment to look at it and think, that was me, the father, the husband, the author. Gloria next steered me to a chair. I could not hear much and my vision was blurred. I could feel eyes on me, though, and I was some crazy sight. Hey, what's Professor Oren Quarry doing here? For those who don't get the reference, take a moment to look it up. 
once we're done here, of course. Over the next hours, I sat like a houseplant, continuing my slow downward spiral. What was left of my circus were emitting deeper and deeper hums, like the last lonesome notes of a bass horn. I guessed that soon there would be only silence, and that truly could be the end of me. Gloria next took me into a room with two beds and pointed at one of them, mine. There was also a bathroom as dark as a cave. Back in the day room, I was settled at a table with a dozen other men and women who cast glances in my general direction, but did not speak to me. Sometime later, a tray was placed in front of me. I didn't touch whatever was on it. A nurse gave me some pills to swallow, and then someone announced that it was time for lights out. Ten hours had gone by and what seemed a dozen minutes. A social worker took me back to my room. Now there was a body in the second bed, my roomie. The social worker pointed and whispered a name I didn't catch. She waited for me to crawl under the covers and then left. Now, lying in the darkness, I began to hear the booms that would resound over the days and nights to come. The closing of doors. I later learned that the wood was weighted to make the sound in order to keep track of any patient's movements in or out. It was, in fact, almost impossible to close them without the telltale percussion. For me, they were echoes of ending, of doom, of the dead. Or so my broken brain told me. That night and the next few that came afterward seemed to go on for a very long time. Dark figures passed through and like a child I pulled up the sheet to hide. The forms passed out again. Closing my eyes I plunged downward to a place like those farthest reaches of the trenches where the strange blind sea creatures swim with their iridescent lights, living and dying in a darkness too complete to comprehend. Unless, of course, you're as crazy as I was in those moments. At some point before dawn, the circuits were still, and I became convinced that the life that I had known as mine had ended, and that when I rose again, it would be as a ghost. The sadness of this revelation was profound, and yet brought a certain peace. There was no longer a me to cling to. That guy was history. I would soon just disintegrate and drift off with the rest of the dust. And with that, one part of the great puzzle would fall into place. After the social worker roused us, I found a piece of paper and crayons and made a drawing of three lines, each a different color. The first and shortest was my physical life. That was over. Those close to me would say goodbye and grieve. The second was a life that would go on with me and a different cast of characters, a parallel. The third was my spirit or energy or chi, or whatever it was, carrying on forever. The nurse who came to take my vitals told me that the guy occupying the second bed was Tom. She offered nothing further. I made my bed, recalling my basic training days of so long ago and the hell that would rain down on our pathetic heads if a quarter didn't bounce off the blanket. Do they still do that? In any case, mine came out a perfect tight rectangle. 
Tom's bed, by contrast, had been left unmade and, in fact, appeared to have been the scene of a pitched battle between angry badgers. Breakfast was scrambled eggs, a sausage patty, a biscuit, and black coffee. I had no appetite, but nibbled half the biscuit and sipped the bitter coffee. After breakfast, an activities director showed up to greet us with a disgustingly cheerful, Good morning! I placed my hands together and bowed my head like the good Buddhist that I was not. I knew the gesture for my Thai American wife and convinced myself that it was appropriate for someone crossing over the bounds of one life into another. Any lingering doubts about my sanity were dispelled when I began to hallucinate in full screen Technicolor. I had crossed the room to stand by the floor to ceiling glass window. Outside was a courtyard with a maple tree, three or four flowering shrubs, and some ground cover, all carefully tended and green with spring. A gentle breeze was lifting the branches with their new leaves. A bird, which I later identified as a male grosbeak, flitted away and back. It was an idyllic scene, like a slow-motion sequence from a nature documentary. As I watched, transfixed, the bird perched, the branch he was clutching bowed. He raised his wings to lift off into the bright day and then froze. He was now hanging in midair. The motion of the branch had stopped. The flowers on the shrubs were no longer waving in the breeze. And that was it. I regarded the still life until the bird flew off again and the branches resumed their waving. Then I whispered to myself, it's official, I'm insane. I sat there in silence until we were called to an activity period and I became newly acquainted with crayons, stubby pencils, glue sticks, and scissors so dull they could not have cut pudding. Your basic kindergarten toolkit and safe as milk. We could have been well-dressed, except for me, professionals of varying stripes sitting around a conference table in a midtown office building, except that we were performing pre-K tasks in a mental ward. Looking around, I saw what I thought were familiar faces among the staffers and the patients. This would happen again and again. Later, I came to realize that I was substituting people I knew and characters from television and movies onto these people. So there was Billy D. Williams and Madeline Stowe and What's-Her-Name, who I would see now and then at the grocery store in my neighborhood. So, with this cast of able actors, my new story began. The band on my wrist and the card by the door of my room identified me as Thurston. That's my first name from my father, who had passed away seven years before, and what now appeared on all the official reports. Another sign that the person I had known as me was gone. As the day went by, more faces passed across my vision, and other voices spoke to me, but I took in next to nothing. Good thing they were handing out the meds. Before bedtime, I was called with the others to the dispensary window where a pill salad designed to stabilize my mad brain was placed in my palm. Once in the room, I laid down and pulled the covers over my head. Again, I floated through the darkness and silence until I came to a still place and there perceived a single distant light. No, this was not one of those end-of-the-line religious experiences 
The light was not beckoning to me, and I did not feel the bliss of becoming one with God. I was simply lingering in an empty place, and during that span of time, a brief window opened on what I believed was close to my core. To this day, I won't say that it wasn't. I began rising up again. Now I was aware of being reassembled into something, actually someone else. I understood that as I moved on, the memories of my former life would break off piece by piece and flutter away like autumn leaves. And the time would come when it would all disappear except for a random thought or a fragment of a dream passing through, a vaguely familiar slip that would come and go. I had always believed, or at least hoped, that the moment of my death would arrive with an overwhelming sadness and an unbearable joy all in one flashing instant and then something else would begin. This was not quite so dramatic, simply a crossing over, and not into bliss or to glory, but another path moving somewhere else. It was with this realization that I greeted the light of day. To be clear, I have no interest in convincing anyone that it was real or imagined or anything else. I felt it, and that's what matters. The hours of the day rolled by like a slow river. After a dinner that I again barely touched, I passed through the day room on my way to losing myself down the corridor. That's where Gloria found me. My wife and daughter had come to visit. I followed her back to the day room. Family or not, I knew that they were only characters in a dream. They weren't really there. And knowing that I might never see them again brought an impossible sadness over me. We visit that evening for the first time. When we get there, he looks really tired. He cries when he sees us, seems so drained. I don't remember much else about this interaction. I touched their lovely faces as tears welled in their eyes. I told them that I knew that they weren't real, but that it was okay. All I knew was that I would love them forever. The hour went by and it was time for them to go. I was relieved that my heart could stop breaking. Then it was time for lights out and sleep evolved into another bizarre adventure, a plunge into a deeper darkness where not even the phosphorescent creatures roamed. I decided that I had finally reached the bottom of my soul. I stayed there, waiting out, what, hours, years, a century? Time didn't exist anymore. Not for me.